So good morning, everybody. You know, as a priest, I, I try to do my best to sort of keep my pulse on what's going on uh, in the church as a whole, in the church here in the diocese, and of course, in my own parish. And I guess I'm admitting that I am trying to figure out, and I'm not certain of it, of how the Catholics today are responding or continuing to respond to the news about the scandal that we've been hearing about over the course of the weeks. Part of me says people are sort of tired of hearing about it, whether it be from the television or from the internet or even from the priests and the bishops. And part of me realizes that people understand that this is probably not going away. They're going to be not only in our nation, but across the whole entirety of the church, more revelations and potentially more scandal. Because we cannot get away from it. And so I struggle whether I should continue to talk about it or not talk about it. What is the best thing to do? And it's been a particular struggle because today's gospel is so important and really pertains in a very, very direct way to the scandal the church, the crisis the church is facing. The truth is I could have talked about this basic message even if we weren't in the situation that we're in, but would I have? That's a different discussion. But what I want to do though is take this opportunity, and it's very hard to pass up, uh, looking at the gospel and applying it to the crisis the church faces, but also trying to make it clear the message would apply to our lives in regards to things of the church or just regards to things in general, even if we were not facing what we are today. And it really focuses on or is rooted in Jesus's rebuke of Peter. Get behind me, Satan. Now we're reading Mark's account, but this rebuke is also in Matthew's account. What's interesting to note, and is important for what we're going to discuss, is this whole scene comes right after Matthew chapter 16 in the other gospel. That's when Jesus names Simon Peter, calls him the rock, gives him the authority to govern his church on earth. Matthew, though, also adds something that we don't hear in Mark. He says to Peter that you are a stumbling block after he says, get behind me, Satan. And if you remember from a few weeks ago, from my homily, I talked about what that Greek word was for stumbling block. It is skandalon, which we translate literally as scandal. A scandal is a stumbling block. And so what I want to focus on today is something that Cardinal Ratzinger wrote back in the late 80s or actually early 90s in talking about the Pope and the church. He says, what should Catholics do when the rock becomes a stumbling block to the faith? What should we do, how should we act when the Pope, or I would dare say the clergy in general, cardinals, bishops, priests, deacons, becomes a stumbling block to the practice of our faith. 
Now again, I can expand this and say, what should any of us do when other Catholics or other people or just situations in general act as a stumbling block? The fact of the matter is, though, I'm not going to be here to try to answer that question, to be able to say, what should we do? If you want to answer that question, all you got to do is go on Twitter, and you got about 5,000 people telling you what they think they should do. There's a lot of people out there with a lot of opinions. So instead, what I want to do is talk about what we should not do in cases like this. What Catholics ought not do when faced with this particular crisis or crises in general that deal with problems with authority, problems with other people, these stumbling blocks to our faith. And I have th three things that I think are crucial for us to focus on. And the first is this, and it goes to us looking at what exactly warrants the rebuke that Jesus gives to Peter. It's interesting, as one theologian notices, he says, if you look at Peter, what is Peter doing? He hears what Jesus says is going to have to happen, that he's the Messiah, and he's going to have to suffer and die at the hands of the scribes and the Pharisees. And Peter says, no, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to allow it. That cannot be God's plan. So what he does, he pulls Jesus aside, and he sets a boundary. A boundary to Jesus, but ultimately a boundary about how God can and cannot act. Peter does this a lot. Lord, you're never going to wash my feet. At the Garden of Gethsemane, we're not going to let people go ahead and take you. I'm going to fight them off with my sword. Peter does this a lot. He sets boundaries according to his own concept of how God should or shouldn't act to Jesus and to God. Now comparing to Mary, when the angel comes to Mary and says, you're going to be the mother of God, and you know what? The son that you have is going to be the rise and fall of a lot of people. Mary doesn't set boundaries. She says, be it done unto me according to thy will. So the first thing, lesson that we have to learn in handling these situations, we should not set boundaries with God or set boundaries with Jesus. And boy, oh boy, I heard a lot of boundary setting when it comes to this scandal. The priest abusing, the bishops covering up. There's no way God could allow this to exist in his church. There's no way sin could do this. It shouldn't be like this, therefore I'm leaving. Setting a boundary. The truth is, I have no idea why God allows stuff like this. But you know what? He did. He did, and he's done it a lot in the history of the church. So who am I to say that it should or should not be this way, that people should or shouldn't act? Granted, morally I can, but the fact of the matter is, is who am I to set a boundary? The truth is, priests and bishops and clergy have behaved as bad or much worse in the past. But the truth is, I've heard it too in other situations. I don't want to be a part of the church because everyone in the parish is too judgmental. It shouldn't be like that. God's church shouldn't be like that. Setting a boundary. Something happens. A loved one that we know gets cancer and dies. Oh, I'm angry at God. God shouldn't allow that. Setting a boundary. And I'm not we're trying to excuse bad behavior or try to say that it's a good thing that, that, that people suffer. We need to be able to grieve and go through the process of grief. But we need to stop setting boundaries 
him telling God what he can do and he can't do and how he should act or he shouldn't act or what should be going on in the church or what shouldn't be going on in the church. The second thing is this. You know, I like etymology and trying to get into words. A couple of week back, weeks back, we looked at the word scandal and saw that it comes from the Greek word skandalon, which means stumbling block. But if you do a little more digging, you'll realize that that word, scandalon, goes back much further. And the root of that word is connected to, and I don't know if I'm pre pronouncing this right, an old French word called esclandre, which means a scandal, a statement that over the years has come into English as the word slander, related, scandal and slander. Of course, slander is the false spoken statement which ruins someone's reputation. The written statement that ruins someone's reputation is libel. So here's the second thing connecting to this idea of scandal. We should not make slanderous or libelous statements to others about this situation and about people, particularly on social media. Now, granted, there's enough anger and frustration going around, and a lot of fingers are being pointed, and a lot of accusing is being done. But there's also a lot of slander and libel being spread, and a lot of good people some bishops and priests and potentially even cardinals are having their reputations ruined. And I know a couple personally. One, there was an article written just a few weeks ago completely filled with slander and written by another priest who didn't have the guts to tell his name. Now, fortunately, my priest friend had enough evidence to rebut what was said because they were all lies or hearsay but it was slander. And so, we ought not say something about an individual or a situation unless we know all of the facts. And the truth is, rarely do we know all the facts. We assume we know all the facts, but of course we all know what happens when we assume. Because remember, innocent until proven guilty also applies to priests. It also applies to bishops and clergy. And an accusation is just that. It's an accusation. It's not an indictment in court. Not all accusations are true, but all of them have the ability, if they are slanderous, to destroy someone's reputation. And everyone has the right to a good reputation even priests, even bishops, and even people in the clergy. Now, of course, this can apply to people and things outside of what we are facing. It's all too easy with social media today to go and hear something or say something and say something which is libelous or then to spread slander and to engage in unjust shaming campaigns. And finally, the last point, we're going to understand this by coming to what comes after this scene of the gospel. Both in Matthew and in Mark, what we see is the transfiguration. Jesus goes up into the mountain and is transfigured before his apostles. And who went up the mountain with Jesus? James, John, and Peter. Jesus didn't say, ah, Peter, 
you're a jerk. You don't understand how God thinks. So I'm taking Bartholomew instead of you. I'm dumping you. You're going to stay down here. No. He takes Peter because he forgave Peter. He showed him mercy and moved up the mountain. And that's the third thing. We should not hold grudges and allow anger is just as it may be to fester in our hearts. Instead, we should be willing to forgive. Now, I am not saying that justice shouldn't be served where the bishops, priests, or whoever are rightfully judged guilty. But just because the crimes are so heinous and we are upset, we do not get a free pass to ignore Jesus' message of forgiving. We don't. We still have to forgive and show mercy. And the truth is, as we know as Christians, too much of a call for justice without tempering it with mercy can become very unhealthy and very, very destructive. Also, we have to consider this. What if some of these priests and these bishops who've done these terrible things have repented? What if they've gone to confession? What if they're doing penance? And what if they face justice? Sure, they need to do these things. They need to face justice. Just because you're sorry doesn't mean you don't have to pay the penalty. But doesn't Jesus forgive them just as he forgave Peter? And if Jesus could forgive them, shouldn't we be willing to forgive too? I've really been shocked. Maybe I shouldn't say that I'm in shock because I probably haven't. It's some of the stuff that I've read in mainstream sources, particularly by some normally reasonable people. One was advocating that a priest, one strike against the Sixth Commandment, whatever strike it is, he should be removed from the priesthood. Another was saying that laws should be changed, that priests who engage in acts, certain acts, with adults should be able to be criminally prosecuted. Now, I'm not saying that priests and bishops should be given free passes to sin, but this is completely unreasonable. Imagine if we advocated treating lay people like that. One strike and you're out. Oh, you do something wrong, you're going to be criminally prosecuted. This is completely unreasonable and completely unjust. The truth is, this is a very, very hard message. And I understand it, and I prayed a lot before I decided to talk about it. But the truth is this. The victims, and our heart goes out to them. If they want to heal, they're going to have to be willing to forgive. This is something we know from the gospel. This is something we know from psychology. You can ask any counselor. They'll tell you the central key to finding healing once you've suffered an injustice is learning and finding the strength to be able to forgive. Or else the anger, the resentment, and the bitterness will eat you alive. And the truth is, if the church as a whole expects to move on, expects to move up the mountain to be able to experience the transfiguration, we've got to be willing to forgive our leaders and others just as Jesus did. Now granted, Peter did not do a lot of what these other individuals did. And it doesn't mean that people who are criminally convicted or guilty should go up the mountain. But if we cannot find it in our hearts to show mercy, then we are going to fester in the valley of our resentment, tear each other apart, instead of heading up the mountain 
to experience the glory. Now, the truth is, this not only applies to the scandal, but when any member of the church or anyone else hurts us, we can't hold on to grudges. We can't let the anger fester and grow. It may be a long and hard road, but we must be willing to show mercy even to the greatest of sinners and in the situations of the greatest injustice. Now, in conclusion, as I said at the beginning, I don't know how much longer we're going to have to live in this miasma of the scandal in the church. And I'm not too sure exactly what we should do moving forward, but I am certain the three things that I mentioned are things that we should not do. It's right to be upset and angry, but we must be careful that our behavior, whatever way it is, does not warrant Jesus turning to us and saying, get behind me, Satan. We need to be willing to clear all the stumbling blocks, even the stumbling blocks ourselves, if we as individuals in the church expect to make it up the mountain. Amen.